I'm Dr. Amy King, otherwise known as Dr. Amy. And this podcast is the most important medicine. If you don't know me, I am a licensed psychologist, trainer, and consultant. And on this podcast, we're here to discuss how talking about trauma and providing a space for patients to share their experiences is how to transform medicine. I work with providers and healthcare organizations on the daily, and every time we begin these conversations and I hint about discussions of trauma, I met with two things, typically, either intense, compassionate curiosity and or a whole lot of skepticism. And that's what we're here for, to make understanding and discussing trauma accessible, and even more important, how to respond to trauma so that you feel competent as a provider. Every time you join me, I want you to hear practical information and leave with tangible tools that you can use with patients today. So today, I want to talk a bit more about what it means to be trauma-informed. But in order to do that well, we have to start with defining trauma, what it looks like, how we got to some definitions of what trauma is. And so we're going to look at the definitions of childhood adversities and other definitions of what it means Um, to have experienced trauma, to just begin with a level set so that when we're talking about trauma, um, adverse childhood experiences, other traumatic um, experiences that one might experience, that we're all on the same page when we discuss that. All right, so let's go ahead and dive in. Many of you may have already heard of what we refer to as the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. That was a study that was done uh, back in the late 1990s, a partnership between the Kaiser Foundation and Dr. Vince Folletti and Robert Anda. And what they found is that when people had one of these 10 adverse childhood experiences, what we now call ACEs, Um, that the likelihood that they were to have long-term health complications rose significantly with increasing ACE scores. Now, remember, this was a population health study, so it was done on thousands of people, but we also, anytime we do population health studies, it's going to give us some pretty uh, broad or generalized statements about groups of people. So we have to put this in context a bit. That study was done 20 years ago on a mostly white, mostly insured population. Um, Nonetheless, it told us really significant information. These ACEs, these 10... Um, adversities that someone may have experienced before the age of 18 fell into one of three categories, abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction. In the abuse category were things like physical abuse, emotional abuse, and sexual abuse. In the neglect category were physical and emotional abuse, um, So, or excuse me, physical and emotional neglect. And in the final category, household dysfunction, it included things like mental illness, having a relative who was incarcerated, seeing your mother treated violently or interpartner domestic violence, substance abuse, or experiencing divorce. And in fact, what they found in that study is that the more ACEs that a person had experiences, experienced, so the more adverse childhood experiences that someone had experienced, the more hazardous it was to their health. In fact, it wasn't just things like we might expect, like, um, you know, being depressed or anxious or having post-traumatic stress disorder because of these adversities. It was things like serious health conditions, chronic lung disease, lung cancer, hypertension. In fact, what they found is that if a person had experienced seven or more ACEs, they had a decreased life expectancy of 20 years. This was significant. 
This study actually didn't have a ton of popularity in mainstream medicine until Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, the former Surgeon General of California, had this infamous TED Talk about ACEs. If you haven't had a chance to watch that, please, I'll link to it in the show notes, go back and watch that. But really, Dr. Burke Harris made that study famous because what she was noticing in her practice was that kids who had experienced early adversity were having, you know, um, delayed growth and health problems. And she was thinking to herself, like, gosh, I wonder if these two things are related, these early adversities and what's going on with their health. And in fact, it was a behavioral health consultant at her office who pointed out to Dr. Burke Harris, hey, you know, there's this study by the Kaiser Foundation, you should take a look at it. And she was just blown out of the water. Um, Her TED talk has been seen millions of times. And in fact, The former American Academy of Pediatrics president, Dr. Robert Block, said that ACEs at the time were the single most unaddressed public health problem facing our nation. And it was really thanks to Dr. Burke Harris for making this study so wildly popular. And then the AEP said, you know, we really need to understand this and become more aware of what these ACEs are, Uh, maybe even begin to screen for ACEs, which we'll dive into in a later episode. But nonetheless, That's where we begin really thinking about talking about trauma more often, more frequently in well visits with kids, well visits with adults, and beginning to tie and connect for our patients how trauma affects their health. Dr. Burke Harris, in her book, The Deepest Well, went back and said, you know, we should probably go ahead and expand this definition. You know, gosh, it's been, you know, 20 years since the study. And so she went on to describe additional ACEs um, in addition to the ones I mentioned before to include things like community violence and homelessness, experiencing discrimination or foster care, being bullied, going through repeated medical procedures or having a life-threatening illness, um, experiencing the death of a caregiver or the loss of your caregiver due to deportation or migration. Um, You can imagine that this was certainly validating and helpful when we began thinking about trauma in a broader way. In fact, the National Child Traumatic Stress Network said those original ACEs are certainly high impact risk, but they're often intrafamilial adversities. And so let's go in and let's expand that definition of adversity to include other things, not just the additional ACEs that Dr. Burke Harris had mentioned in her book in 2018, but they went on to describe many more as well, such as forced displacement, kidnapping, experiencing a natural disaster, experiencing community violence or going through war or a place where you'd experience terrorism or political violence in your country. And it really begins, as you can see here, to form and shape the way we think about how people experience trauma and that there are different types of trauma, not just intrafamilial traumas that that kids may experience and later adults within families, but to broaden that to look at their their environment, right? Their neighborhoods that they're living in, uh, political situations or war terrorism that they may have gone through. In addition to that, we have to look at other types of trauma, such as historical traumas. Um, Those are typically traumas that occur to entire groups of people because of their race, their creed, or their ethnicity. Often these people experience higher rates of mental illness and physical illness, substance abuse, because of the trauma that's inflicted upon them. 
um, historical trauma isn't just about the trauma that happened in the past. It's about trauma that continues to happen to people. Examples of that are genocide, slavery, forced relocation, or destruction of cultural practices. Um, You can see as we, again, begin to expand this definition of trauma that it's important to begin to look at not just those initial ACEs, right? Those initial 10 ACEs, but now Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris expanded the definition in her book, and then the National Child Traumatic Stress Network broadened it beyond that to other environmental factors. And then we can also and should be looking at things like historical traumas, as I just described, and intergenerational traumas. Intergenerational traumas are those traumas that we see that are experienced by multiple generations of a family. Um, Each generation may experience its own form of trauma, and often it can be traced back decades. Things like sexual abuse, poverty, drug and alcohol addiction. Intergenerational trauma, to note, is distinct from historical trauma in that Um, Intergenerational trauma refers to specific experiences across a family, whereas historical trauma refers to trauma that's inflicted on entire groups of people because of their race, creed, or ethnicity. There's a beautiful model um, um, called the extended ACEs pyramid that looks not just at the ACE score or complex trauma, but it looks at trauma, social location, um, implicit biases, epigenetics, and experiences. It looks beyond it so that we're also including racial, social conditions, local context, and then generational or historical traumas as well. Um, that, that model, if you're interested, can be seen, um, that particular model, um, the extended ACEs pyramid, can be seen on the CDC website, Um, Also, it was presented by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium in 2016. So what what I'm hoping that you're seeing here um, as we're talking through what trauma is, um, how we might begin to define it, is that trauma can begin to happen early on in those what we call intrafamilial adversities like the original ACE score, but we can also look at it in terms of uh, a community that, that one lives in or um, oppression that, that people experience. It can be seen in, in historical ways against entire groups of people. It can be seen as happening through multiple generations of a family. Um, and that trauma affects how um, people see themselves. It affects how they behave in the world. Um, it affects how they interact with other people. You can imagine if you've experienced multiple traumas and different types of traumas that that's going to present, especially in, in the spirit of this podcast in a medical setting um, in various ways, right? Patients or families might seem distracted or agitated or reactionary. Um, They might miss appointments. They might seem angry. They might seem disinterested in what we might typically um, want them to be engaging in, in terms of what we call medical compliance they might blame others if, if they're not feeling successful. Um, they might you know, refuse to be helped. Um, there might be poor outcomes for activities, or sometimes there's no obvious outward symptoms at all. If we don't, however, pause to think about, hmm, I wonder what happened to this person, that there's a reason beyond the behavior that we're seeing 
that might be affecting how that person is presenting to us on a given day, right? And really the types of trauma that can affect people's behavior could be a single event or what we call acute trauma, right? Like um, being in a car accident, experiencing a medical procedure, um, being involved in a school shooting, witnessing a fight, or it can be what we call complex trauma. And complex trauma really can present um, in very significant ways. Complex trauma is long-term repetitive abuse that's happening over the course of a person's lifetime. And examples of that I, I gave a bit ago, but really what differentiates trauma from a single event from complex trauma is often the trauma is happening over the course of a person's lifetime with little access to resources or support. There's so many incredible experts in the area of trauma that talk about how um, an experience becomes traumatic because it's experienced alone. When we have to carry something by ourselves, when we don't have resources, when we don't have support. In fact, Later, when we talk about positive childhood experiences um, and the things that create resilience for kids and for families, uh, strength that helps them overcome difficulties and hardships, we'll actually see how when we, when we can have access to some of those buffering resources, kids do better, adults feel better, families can begin to heal much of these traumas. So I know often when I'm talking with providers, People feel really bummed, like, oh my gosh, Amy, this is so heavy. You're telling me things like the more trauma I experience, the more likely I am to have significant health outcomes long-term. And, you know, if I'm fostering a child or if I'm raising a child who's experienced trauma, especially complex trauma, like, is it hopeless for him or her? Absolutely not. If you have a partner who's experienced trauma, if you're raising a child who's experienced trauma, if you yourself has ex have experienced any of these forms of trauma, we can begin to heal trauma in relationships. And, and in fact, that's why this podcast and, and talking to medical providers, um, whether it's someone who works in the front office and is handing out um, health surveys or depression screeners or PHQs um, to patients or someone who's calling a family about billing or a late um, invoice that they may have received or an MA who's talking to a family as they walk him, them back to a room. On every level of a healthcare facility, whether you're in a small clinic or a large healthcare facilities, the more we're aware of what trauma is and what it might look like, the more compassionate we can begin to be. And in fact, it's not hopeless. There is so much research that come that, that we have access to now that shows, you know, we may experience trauma and adversity, but then there are these intervening variables um, that can help to ameliorate the effects of trauma and can really decrease the long-term consequences that were found there. So there's actually a ton of hope that we can begin to build in. And we'll even, we'll even talk later on about how we can build in those buffering mechanisms. But for, for now, what I want you to, to just know is that trauma and the idea about talking about trauma in healthcare settings really came about in the early 2000s when this study by the Kaiser Foundation became very, very popular. 
And it became identified that we should begin talking about trauma, identifying trauma, um, doing some screenings, even um, in, in many clinics, you're beginning to to see some screenings for social determinants of health um, and ACE screening, which we'll talk about later. But for now, what I want you to do, what I want you to know is that we have really expanded our initial definition of trauma, not to just include the initial ACEs study, but beyond that, through Dr. Brooke Harris's work, beyond that, through the National Child Traumatic Stress Network, beyond that, even to include what we call that extended ACEs period that also includes historical and intergenerational traumas. The bottom line is this, to begin to be aware of this means that you're becoming trauma aware, right? You maybe aren't yet trauma informed and that all of your behaviors are fully integrating and awareness and and information about what trauma looks like and how it presents. But just now, even by listening to this and, and beginning to think to yourself, gosh, I didn't realize that when this patient was angry or aggressive or um, didn't come in for their appointment or, you know, denied help, that that might be trauma. That if we begin to ask ourselves instead of what's wrong with that person, instead, I wonder what happened and how can I help? That's really the shift of a trauma-informed, trauma-aware lens. The SAMHSA model says that in order to begin to become trauma aware and and hopefully fully integrated and trauma informed, that we have to recognize trauma and chronic stress. We have to know what it looks like. So we tackled a couple of those today. We have to avoid triggering and increasing trauma or chronic stress in the patients that we serve, right? So we, we want to be aware of it so that when someone comes into the waiting room, we don't further trigger what might be already going on with him or her. We want to restore safety and strength and self-worth. And we want to treat all people with compassionate, respectful care. So in another episode, we'll go into some components of trauma-informed care. Um, We'll go through some scenarios about different ways that adults or kids might present in your clinic or in your hospital setting and how different people in various roles can really play a vital part. But for today, I just wanted us to dive into what is trauma? What does it look like? How do we begin to differentiate various types of trauma so that we have some working framework, especially as we begin to have guests in this podcast? Um, I want us to have similar language that we can use so that we're all on the same page. So that's it for today, friends. Um, people and sites that I've mentioned, I will put in the show notes, nothing fancy. I just always want you to have access to those. Also, the best thing you can do for yourself to continue to get information around trauma-informed care and ways to build resilience for your patients is to go to my website, www.dramyllc, and that's doctor spelled out, dramyllc.com, and subscribe to my newsletter. It's free. It's for providers. It's got tons of relatable information to help you transform your practice, and it comes out every week. And if you're like what you're hearing right now in this podcast space, I invite you to join us in the Provider Lounge, a community to build resilience. It's a membership for providers to have access to all of my training materials regarding resilience building and create those buffering mechanisms. It also has um, part content in a portal and community. We meet monthly and you can get CME all while getting these 
amazing doses of important information. And if we're honest, like a little bit of therapy too, right? So part content, part community. And it's really an incredible group of providers who work together in a learning collaborative and lean into conversations about trauma, resilience, and other tough questions that come up in primary care. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to people's stories. Let them transform you and keep sharing your own because your humanity will heal others. All right, we'll talk soon.